the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. In this episode, we'll be donning our flak jackets and reviewing the top 10 security concerns that web application developers may face. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rob. We meet again. We do. Under these auspicious circumstances. Once again, over a microphone and a webcam. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. That sounds way dodgier than... <laughs> yeah, right, that, that came out wrong. Uh, <clears throat> anyway. So, have you been? I've been well. Uh, we've been editing the last podcast, and it's been out. The awesome interview we had with Brett Fisher. So that's just gone out. That went out, like, last couple of days. So if you haven't heard that, go and grab it. Yeah. That was a really great interview, really uh, rounding off our Docker knowledge. Yep. And of course, if you, the listener, my dear listener, if you have any ideas that you want us to discuss, uh, any subjects you want us to cover, you can always like email us or tweet us at localhost.fm or email us at show at localhost.fm. And I'm at Mark Drew on the Twitter and I'm at Rob Dudley on the Twitter. We would love to hear from you, even if it's just uh, to say that we're amazing and awesome. Yeah. Because we seek constant validation. <laughs> what are we talking about this week, Mr. Rob? Well, this week, we're going to lock it down. We're going to get secure with the security. And specifically, we're talking about web application security. Yeah. Because there's lots of security. We're not going to be talking about those great locks that you can get and how not to break open doors. And uh, in a more serious manner, there's a big subject, which is how to break into systems using human attack vectors. In other words, people, right? So social engineering or... Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's... Yeah, we're not doing that. I think that deserves its own subject, its, its own episode, to be honest. But I think we're going to be talking about something more specific we're going to be running, basically running through something called the OWASP Top 10. What is an OWASP? It sounds very insect-like. The OWASP the is OWASP. the Open Web Application Security Project. So basically, these are a group of companies, individual security experts, and every few years or so, they update a list of their top 10 security risks so mistakes that developers can make or issues that they can encounter in their application. And they rank them from you know 1 to 10, 1 being the most prevalent and the one that you should be most aware of, uh, and give you a bit of information about you know how you can mitigate and avoid falling foul of these filthy, pernicious security exploits. Right. These are like kind of broad, well, not so broad, actually much more specific things that as web developers, we can make mistakes in or things that we can overlook. I don't think that they don't really cover things like zero-day exploits, like, for example, the heart bleed and meltdown bugs, do they? I mean, because these are not, not like things that we not do. Not explicitly, no. These are more general, although there is one of the uh, points that we'll be discussing does actually kind of reference areas like zero days, right. but they're not that specific. They are more general risks, um, and they, they are updated, as I say, every couple of years, because obviously the risk uh, landscape changes for web application developers as new features come in and new techniques are used. So they bring with them new and nasty security holes that we can fall down. For example, one that we've just talked about, NoSQL. Right? I think everyone's, without jumping ahead, everyone's heard of SQL injection, but now you have NoSQL injection, right? Yeah. And uh, as we get into the list, there will be a couple of examples where you'll see that, oh, yeah, that's that's a bit new, or that could affect me if I'm using this particular new kind of architectural pattern or new system. Right. So. Shall we do a rundown? We shall. At number 10, uh, we have insufficient logging and monitoring. There's a new entry in there. So we discussed this a little bit in, was it with Brett or in about Docker, essentially about developing your apps, is that one of the things that you have to do is look at the logs. Now, it becomes a lot more difficult if you have a Dockerized environment that you have, you know, your logs disappearing in containers. But that's a really important part of having web apps, seeing what's going on and what oddities can be going on, right? Yeah, so this is computer's log. 
right? They have done since the beginning of time. Applications should log. And it's a case of making sure that we are sufficiently logging from our applications, but also that we are monitoring and reviewing those logs and that we're monitoring and reviewing the systems that are running. So... To give a classic example of why this is important, if you have a well-configured, say, Ubuntu box, this isn't to do with the application, this is to do with the host, Mm. and it has a firewall, and that firewall is logging failed access attempts, being able to review those failed access attempts on different ports could indicate that you've just been scanned. Right. So it's the first step of a potential penetration is uh, research and analysis. Yeah, so you those. go for a, a more specific application level one. It's, it's things like logging the fact that an IP address has failed a login attempt. Mm-hmm. Like again, again and can, again. Like again and again with right. different usernames potentially or different user, you know, whatever. Again, that can indicate that there's patterns. Mm-hmm. And, and realistically... Even, sorry, sorry and even from... You, this is like from a system software, like your application server or something like that. But even within your application, start to log access to pages that you know people shouldn't have access to if they're not logged in, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Like continued access to like a uh, user profile that you need to be logged in to see as an example, right? Or your top secret password page or the slash admin folder in nearly every web app that people develop, right? Yep. Start logging which IPs are being accessed to. So, for example, like suddenly North Korea seems to be accessing the slash admin folder of your UK-based content management system might be a little bit dodgy, right? So it's logging yeah. that kind of stuff. But it's also more than just logging it because it's not enough just to log it and have it in a bucket somewhere. Right. You have to have some form of analysis, and that can be manual, although that's probably going to be quite inefficient. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, what you'll actually deploy is is some form of you know a log analysis framework. Mm-hmm. So you'll centralize your logging. You'll have a system that runs over it and can read all these logs, and it will alert basically based on rules or pattern matching or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of examples of tools that do this, and we'll just stick them in the show notes. Sure, Elk being one of them. I think mm-hmm. you know, looking at the future for this part of it is machine learning is going to start really start coming in. So you get having like these patterns of machine learning going. Like, well, this is a pattern, this is a usual pattern, and it'll start highlighting things that look unusual. Having done my fair share of monitoring and logging and doing statistics about where people are accessing sites from is actually a real pain to see outliers. It's like because you're looking for like a needle in a haystack, there's so much logging. So, systems that can highlight it are going to be really good for this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And this is only going to get harder because, you know, as logging becomes more prevalent and the analysis systems become better, so the attackers will find new ways to avoid triggering your amazing shiny rule set. Hmm. But it's non it's an ongoing battle. But basically if you are not currently logging out of your application, out of your operating system and reviewing and monitoring those logs, you are likely falling foul of number ten on the OWASP list. Mm-hmm. At number nine, we have using components with known vulnerabilities, which has been there for a few years at that position, right? Yeah. So this is, as we just touched on, for example, me using broken SSL implementation that can lead to the heartbeat bug, right? It's using something that we know that has got a backdoor of or, or failure or, or risk with it. I think it's actually, um, it's not even that we know it's got a backdoor, it's that there is a backdoor that is known. right. Yeah, bigger problem. So it's it's not got a kind of pre-zero day, but effectively we're increasingly, you know, we've talked about this tons. We're writing modular software, we're using libraries, we're using modules, we're using NPM, we're using all sorts of different package management systems and even front-end uh, libraries. We're pulling all of these in from CDNs. You have to keep on top of this stuff because you're potentially loading this code directly in alongside your own. It has the same kind of rights as the rest of your application. Yeah, that's uh, and true. if there's a bug yeah. in that in that module, or potentially worse, a malicious bit of code in that module, your application is wide open. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like one of these spy film type attacks in a way, which is, you know, you don't go for the main door; you go and attack the security guard, you know, because he go, likes going to a strip club or something. I can't remember. If I'm stealing this from some film. Uh, I think that might be Ocean's Eleven, actually. Or one oh, of that's them. right. Yeah, um, you try and get the but, card from the security guard that, that oh, he's sneakers. the weakness. No, that's Sneakers. There we go, because I watched oh. that the other week. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of a, a less direct attack, but 
it can be devastating. Mm-hmm. And it can be quite tricky for us as developers to actually keep on top of our dependencies because certainly I know I rag on Node, but it's a classic example of where dependencies install dependencies. Mm-hmm. So you've got no idea what you're actually getting out of the box. You install a a nice, simple kind of SDK to invoke a banking API. You've got no idea what else it's pulling down unless you actually go through and review all of these layers. There are tools, Mm -hmm. fortunately, that make this kind of easy to analyze. You can scan your module base, and there's different tools depending on the language. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's, depending on the platform, there are also things like trusted packages in some instances or signed packages. Okay. Signed packages mitigate the problem that potentially somebody's injected something into that package. Right. Which is going to give you a problem. This is how you got an MD5 hash on it saying it has to be this big. It has to have well, this character. Given that we're talking about web application security, of course, we don't use MD5 anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm using that as an example that I saw on the web recently. I'm sorry. Yeah. So it's, it's you get a a secure hash or it's signed with some kind of public-private key, you get this level of trust that the package you're getting is as the developer intended. And the other thing, of course, and we'll come back to this in a second, is making sure that you keep your components up to date. Yeah, I mean, that's the most important one. I mean, this is a simple one. Even the NHS failed at this, and that's a big example of uh, the National Health Service in the UK got owned by, I don't know, Russian botnet, wasn't it? I can't even remember now. It was WannaCry, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. They got the WannaCry in there, and this was because you're running Windows 95. Yeah, so you know, in the, in the broadest sense, you could say, and I think we did say this when we last discussed it, Windows 95 as an operating system is a component, right? Yeah. And that's the other key thing is it's easy to focus in on the modules and like the NPM packages, but also keep your OS up to date and keep the packages that are installed on the operating system up to date. Right. If you're using a Linuxy based one, make sure that you're running you know apt-get update or what's it DNF upgrade mm-hmm. for the Fedora heads out there. Likewise on Windows, make sure that your patching's there. But we come back to this in a second. There is actually a bit more about kind of operating system security. So that's number nine. And at number eight, we have insecure deserialization. Did I say that right? Insecure deserialization, which is a... Try saying that ten times fast. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not. Uh, Which is a new entry. Um, I don't know if it's a new entry. I think it's they've amalgamated a few of the entries from previous years into a more slightly broader terms yeah so when we say it's a new entry it wasn't there in this form but i think what they've done is they've specified a little bit better in this 2017 list and it reflects changes to the way that we work with applications and one of the things that we've actually i mean we've always as developers had serialization and deserialization of of objects of code of, of data structures and that's how we kind of communicate with other systems right and this is the 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 attack vector that you can have is like we go to Twitter to get a JSON handle of all the people that have tweeted our podcast or something. I don't know. I don't, I'm using it as an example. But you get an expected structure back, and this is where you can inject stuff. Yeah, so you'll get a data packet back. Um, and I think the reason that this has been kind of moved up and specified is increasingly we're using APIs that will return serialized data. Right. We're also chucking serialized data around between ourselves. Mm-hmm. But the big one here is we're, we're kind of looking at JSON yeah. as a serialized data interchange format. Mm-hmm. Reason that JSON is dangerous is because it is JavaScript. Yeah. And if you start running, I mean, the whole idea is that you should be either doing your own deserialization and expecting very primitive data back. In other words, not code. Right, so if I'm returning something, it should say mark. It shouldn't say eval some string of JavaScript to go and get the database stuff, right? Yeah, or you employ JSONP or similar. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a JSON thing. Right. You know, there's an example of, say, for example, if you've serialized data into a cookie, Mm -hmm. then depending on what you're using, if you're not using kind of a binary serialization, like Python's pickle, I think, is binary. Mm Mm-hmm. PHP serialization is not, it's ASCII. Right. Which means that, fair enough, it's ASCII and it's checksummed, but that is perfectly editable. And depending on what you then go on to do with that data once you've deserialized it, if you're just going to serialize an entire object, if you don't verify that that object is as you expect it to be, you deserialize it, call a method, and that method's been changed in the serialized object. It doesn't do what you thought it was going to do anymore. Right. 
A good example of this would be for, well, as an example, it's like if you have a cookie that is saving like a JSON string that says your name and your privilege level. Yeah. And you can go in there and edit it. So for example, it says, hey, he is logged in and his name is this and his access is this. I could go in there, just change that cookie and suddenly have, you know, change my access credentials. Yes, absolutely. And the best way to avoid this is to avoid a situation where you are taking untrusted serialized data. In the example of the cookie, it's easy. Just encrypt the damn thing, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and then you've got a decryption step, which only you can do, and it's untamperable with. Yeah. Where we're talking to external services, we need to make sure that that data is trusted, and we need to approach it as we would any other external data, which is very, very carefully. Right. And remember, like these these external services can be a whole bunch of stuff. So it can be a remote server. It could be your caching server, because you could. that would be a great idea to get in there databases, file systems that are not our own, and probably even our own in some ways. And yeah, cookies, form params, obviously, because we now use a lot of uh, JSON going forwards and back from the front end to the back end in nearly every app, right? Yep. But yeah, so I think that you have to be very careful about the crud that comes at you. Always think of like stuff that's coming back as dirty. Yeah, always. So that's number eight, insecure deserialization. This is not so much of an issue at number seven, which is cross-site scripting. I think a lot of uh, the browsers and the patterns have lowered the status of this. This was a bigger issue, um, which was... Do you want to say what cross-site scripting is, or do you want me to say? Well, it's basically the ability to inject script into a page that is then run, right? Right. That was not intended to be there. Right. I think a good example would be, let's say you have a moderated forum, right? And people can post stuff in there, but you have a moderator having a look at it. So I could maliciously go and put a little script tag that would say, go and run this script when I'm viewed. So the moderator goes in, they look at what you've posted, but of course it's HTML, right? So then it goes and includes that script that then runs, gets the admin cookie, sends me the login credentials by saying, hey, this is a cookie that they're using, and I can then log in as an admin. Mm-hmm. Is that a good example? I think that's a... Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the other one is, in its simplest form, I have an application that allows me to store a signature. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a forum example. And in that signature, I decide to put a little bit of JavaScript that actually loads uh, an image and makes it full screen, uses some CSS and blocks the site. And that image basically invites people to join the Church of Rob. Right. Um, it's not what the site was there for, but then anybody loading that page will have that code executed because it's in my signature. And they will then see that image loaded and they won't be able to use the site. Or oh, Sammy was a perfect example, wasn't it, from MySpace days? Yeah. So Sammy decided to do a script that whenever anyone saw his page, they would be added as a friend to, you know, run some JavaScript that would make them become his friend. Because mm-hmm. that was the credentials back in the day. Well, I guess Twitter now is like, you know, it's like anyone that viewed any of your tweets would then follow you, even whether they wanted to or not. And then that would spread to their pages, so their friends would also follow you. So suddenly he had everyone was his friend on MySpace. And it became the anti-Sammy scripts, the, you know, the, to remove that kind of stuff, which was a kind of the basis of this cross-site scripting um, idea, I guess. Yeah, so cross-site scripting has been around forever, mm-hmm. effectively. It is interesting that in terms of the kind of exploitability metrics that OWASP give, this one's in the red. Uh, it might be number seven on the list, but mm. it's really common. It's really, you know, relatively straightforward and easy to do yeah. if there is an exploit available. Fortunately, it's also really, really easy to prevent. Yeah. So depending on what you're writing in, a lot of application frameworks automatically handle XSS. They basically escape HTML, they scrub it, the template engines are, are quite smart. You have to work quite hard to get raw output into your page. There's also a whole bunch of stuff that you can do as a developer, which is basically making sure that any HTML input is sanitized and scrubbed, that you're only allowing certain tags, for example. Please don't write your own library to do this. No, God, and no. Certainly don't do it with regular expressions. But you know, use an HTML or an XML parser to validate the input from the user before you store it. 
the real big problem with this is that it's very easy for us as developers to write a system that allows this exploit to happen, but it will never really directly affect us because it, you know we can store this stuff in the database and it's completely safe. Mm-hmm. It's not causing us problems, except it is because it's our it's our site, it's our user base, and what have you. Right. So don't think that just because you're escaping all of this data before you store it into the database, you're completely safe. Because if you're then de-escaping, you unescape it, it yeah. when you then when you then output it to the user, right? So, but content security policies can help with this, right? Yeah. So this is the. I mean, I say new; they're not new anymore. But this is the idea that there is a whole set of browser features that prevent pages from going off to other domains. We can set up entire sets of policies that basically specify exactly what can and can't be done via JavaScript. You know, there's a whole bunch of tooling that's emerged over the past few years effectively to handle exactly this problem. Next time you're wailing and gnashing your teeth about the fact that you can't configure calls correctly for an API, you can blame the cross-site scripting crew because it's their fault we've got to do it. <laughs> Damn them. And this leads us to number six, uh, which is down one from number five, which is security misconfiguration. I mean, this is kind of an obvious thing. It's like we're standing on the shoulders of giants when we do web apps, right? We have applications in the background. We have whole frameworks that are there that come with lovely example applications. One of the ones that does come to mind is FCK Editor. I think it's been misnamed CK Editor. CK Editor now, yeah. Yeah. That came with a whole bunch of examples of how to implement it. And, of course, you just copy that folder into your live production server to have a nice little rich text editor. And now people had access to the PHP and ASP and ColdFusion and Node implementations of file uploading, right? Yep. And they could upload those files anywhere if memory serves. Yeah, exactly. Or actually, no, it was uploaded, but it was uploaded into a web executable directory, so they could just upload their own ColdFusion script or their own PHP script, and right. it would do whatever they wanted it to do. So this is, to be honest, as application developers, this is one of the harder ones to get right, because I know that a lot of web devs will also be, to a varying degree, web system administrators, mm-hmm. but this is really a sysadmin function. So this is about making sure that your server is locked down, that your runtime or your application uh, language is correctly configured. So, you know, classic example in the case of PHP, make sure that things got open base DIR in effect so that you can't exploit uploading a PHP file just into the web root and running it. Mm. Making sure that it's CH rooted if you're on Linux-based systems, so it's kind of isolated. In more general terms, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there about server hardening and application stack hardening. Sure. And the specific server to server. Yeah. But yeah, so the biggest thing I would say here is get as little as possible on your production stack. Yeah. Remove everything. And from a configuration point of view, the ones that are kind of ingrained in me is, and this is bloody obvious, don't allow directory browsing on your web server, right? Yep. So if you go to a folder that doesn't have like a, an index page, you know, don't allow people to see what's there, <laughs> right? Because it can get an idea of what's an executable file there, etc. Another one is if you have error messages, keep them really friendly and don't expose any more information than you have to. Oh, that drives me up the wall. It's, is it .NET that I frequently yes. see? Yeah, yeah. And they basically, they've left the development flag on. Yeah. You know, turn on, for God's sake, turn on production error messages. Otherwise, you leak a ton of information about your server, about your application, depending on how it's coded, right? And this goes into the, the logging. Yeah, it goes right? into logging. This goes into the logging and monitoring because I can see why they've left it on, right? It's like you've put something live, something's gone wrong, and you, you're trying to figure out what that error is happening on live. So you put on the, the big error messages that tell you as a developer what's going on, but now you've just told the world the structure of the application. You've given them far too much information about it. Yeah, I mean, the worst case example, and this is a genuine thing that I have seen in a poorly written ASP.NET application that was uploaded, running in production with debug tracing on, and they had a problem, their database server went away. It happens. The trouble is that they had basically, because it gives you a nice little snippet of code, in that snippet of code was the full connection string to the database. Oh, God. Hostname, username, password. Oh. So there's a whole bunch of stuff about where you should store that, you know, keep it in Env and all the rest of it. Yeah. But even so, 
But even then, by the, if it's coming out on the end, yeah. it's calculating the value of the environment variable and giving it to you as the plane string. No, that's terrible. That's that's. Ho- now, the reason that this one is it's so broad is because increasingly we're using platforms to run our platforms. Right. So, you know, in the good old days, it was fine. You just bought a box, you stuck it in the corner, you installed an operating system, you secured it. Well, now we're spinning up AWS uh, instances. Uh, potentially, we don't have a server at all. So we've actually got a whole nother layer again in terms of making sure that our cloud provider security groups are correctly configured, that our permissions and roles there are secured because all of these are vectors into your, you know, your application. Mm. Security misconfiguration is huge. Yeah, <laughs> It's a big topic, and that's why it's going to be there, and I think it's going to be there for ages despite going down in our list of stuff but you know uh, yeah next next up number five broken access control uh <laughs> which is up to um this is very similar but as uh, security means configuration because i kind of think they match but one of them i think the simplest one is that if you're able to look at record number 10 of whatever database or system that you're doing, if I just typed in number 11 on the URL and I was able to get at it just by rewriting the URL and I shouldn't have, then you've got broken access control, right? Yeah. If I'm able to change some of the inputs, whether it's cookie, whether it's form, whether it's a URL, uh, to change the security, so there's no security check again, you know, that I should have access to it, that's kind of broken access control. Oh, absolutely. And it's the classic, you know, ID traversal mm. is the classic example of broken access control. And that can be the fact that, you know, you can basically jump monkey with the URL. You might be thinking, well, I don't store my IDs in the URL. They're in cookies. Same problem. Yeah. You still need to have that underlying check. Can this individual perform this action? And it's even down to things, and I see this quite a lot, where, for example, you have a REST or a resource that allows guest users to read, uh, the owner to edit, delete, etc. right? Mm-hmm. And all that they've done is, rather than enforcing that within the application, they've just hidden a bunch of buttons on the screen. Oh, God, yeah. So if I'm using an API browser, I can find that resource, and I just, for the hell of it, I send a delete request to that URL, Ooh, all of a sudden the resource is gone. <laughs> that, again, broken access control, right? right? It's not enough just to hide this stuff. We have to check it. I think this falls under the security through obscurity. That's a falseness, you know? Just because a user can't see it doesn't mean they can't monkey with it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the classic thing where I'm sure we've all done it, where we pop open uh, the developer tools and quickly tinker with a bit of the of the source code. And the, the person observing us do the, oh, that's magic. How did you manage to change that? Like, yeah, because this stuff is eminently manipulatable. Yeah. So we need to make sure that we're aware of and protected against that manipulation. One of the funny ones around that, which I, you know, I abuse, is when they do a popover, a modal thing, like, please subscribe to our newsletter before you can read this article. It's like, how about no? I am going to go to my inspector Inspect, and get delete and node, <laughs> delete that node, and now I'm going to read the article. Yeah, screw you. And and <laughs> and that's what comes under this. This is broken access control, right? Because in theory, I should not have access just because you're blocking me. You know? Yeah. I mean, we had this with our local, local newspaper's website. They rolled out this paywall. Really? But the paywall was brilliant because it could be defeated by right-click, inspect, delete the, the shade, the blind, and then effectively reset the height of an element because the content was all there. Ugh. It was just hidden. It was, it was really, really, really cruddy, and they dropped the paywall aspect fairly quickly thereafter, probably because it wasn't making them any money because it could be defeated by one line of CSS. But there we go. Yeah, but the thing is, it's like, you know, most people will think this is magic if they're not web developers. Our audience is a self-selecting subset of people that will know <laughs> about this, right? There's but that if- one guy who's not a web developer is going, what are they talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I've been listening to this podcast for ages and I have no idea what they talk about. But if you are, here's a trick. Go to any web page, right-click and do inspect. There's a whole bunch of magic in there that you can modify the page that you're looking at. It's fantastic. But yeah, so in all seriousness, that's what, you know, broken access control is basically giving access to someone that's monkeying around with the inputs to your website. 
Yeah. And there's a couple of classic examples as well, or more modern examples. So things like if we're using uh, web tokens, JSON web tokens right. for authentication, make sure that those keys or those tokens are invalidated once the user logs out ah, so that they yeah. can't then just be replayed. I don't know if you remember the, I think it was called, I want to say Fire Sheep attack that was basically sniffing. It was a, a really simple app on Android, and all it did was it sniffed open wireless networks for packets that looked like Facebook session IDs. Oh, really? And this was before Facebook rolled out HTTPS or mm. SSL. And, yeah, it would get them, and basically just by replaying a specific packet, you could log in as that user. So, you know, this stuff is it affects even the big boys. Mm. You just need to be aware of it. So that's number five. Broken access control. At number four, which is a new entry, <laughs> which is an odd one, is a new entry at number four, which is something that I wouldn't have thought about, which is XML external entities, or XXE. And the reason I don't think you think about it is because I haven't been using XML for a long time. I mean, I edit a few XML files, but I don't use it as part of a app recently. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's because we're funky hipster web devs and mm. it's like JSON or bust, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm guessing the reason that this is as high in the list as it is and the reason that it's been explicitly pulled out is because you know, there are a lot of enterprise systems out there that are still effectively giant churning vats of XML. That's the best description I've ever seen for, <laughs> ever heard for. So I suppose we can blast through this one fairly quickly because it is sure. quite specific. Yeah. If you're using XML in your application... Make sure that you are aware of what an XML entity is. Mm -hmm. An XML entity is an actual tag name, right? It's an angle bracket exclamation mark entity, which is something that you can load up from. from it's like an include for XML, right? Yeah. And you can give it a name and you can say what type it is, if it's a system, generally system. And you could load in a file into it and output the contents of that file. So, for example, you could load in the password file and output it. If the process, the converter or the serializer of that XML or the parser of that XML has got access to any file system, you can do that. Yep. You could probably do it from another server, like or an internal server, right? Mm -hmm. You could get access to the back-end database because the front-end is not giving you access to the 192 for, uh, network, but the, an entity would. Yeah, because the XML parser is running internal to the application again. So how do we prevent it? Well, there's a whole bunch of different things that you should be doing. Uh, make sure that your XML processors and libraries, again, going back to dependencies, are up to date. Make sure that you, to be honest, you can disable it altogether if you're not using it. Yeah. A lot of XML parsers have this as a flag or have to have it explicitly enabled. Whitelist any inbound entities so that you can basically validate that this is something that I'm expecting. And you can also kind of run static analysis tooling to make sure that you're not inadvertently open to this particular kind of attack. Yeah. There's a couple of other ones as well, because I think this would be part of web services. So upgrade to SOAP 1.2. You can upgrade all your, make sure your libraries are up to date. Obviously, we've already just said that in a previous one. But, or maybe upgrade to JSON to simpler formats, right, that don't do so much processing or aren't allowed to do so much processing. Turn away from the dark side <laughs> and come to come into the light. Come we to have the JSON. light, Susan, come to the light. Oh, but bear in mind that JSON, of course, is subject to its own set of amazing injection and execution problems. <clears throat> uh, yeah. it's, it's tough being a, a data wrangler in this day and age. So <laughs> that was the very specific number four. Yeah. At number three, we have sensitive data exposure. So this has become more prevalent now. This is because we have more sensitive data. I'm not looking at you, Cambridge Analytics, at all. And it's exposing that data, right? Yeah, so this, again, is kind of a broad one, and it kind of uh, is almost a, a side effect of different attacks. But the idea is that if you have data that is sensitive, you should absolutely ensure that at no point can it be exposed in its plain form yeah this is actually kind of as well as a legal thing this is not just a technological thing this is a legal thing like so pci compliance which is uh, for pci dss which is 
security standards for storing credit card data and credit card information. Mm-hmm. Then you've got this recent one that's going to hit everyone is the General Data Protection Regulation, the EU's GDPR, which is how you have to manage data and how you use that data and who has access to that data. So the, it's not just a technical one, but it's more of a how do you manage what data do you have? Should you have that data? at all. Yeah. You can broaden it right out to general data protection mm-hmm. from an OWASP perspective. Effectively, what they're talking about here is encrypt all the things. Mm-hmm. You know, we shouldn't be transmitting data in clear text, for example, because it yeah. can be intercepted. We shouldn't really be storing data in clear text mm-hmm. uh, if it's really, really sensitive. You know, if somebody manages to get hold of a database dump or via another means that we will talk about in a moment. They managed to get access to the content of a database table, but the data in that table is further encrypted. Mm. That data is still kind of secure, right? They can't just read it. Right. Making but. sure that we've got <laughs> audit control and access control around stored files and you know, making sure that only the application can access them. And again, that they're encrypted on the disk. So if mm-hmm. a sysadmin is just wandering around and looks in, you know, D uploads sensitive data, there's not just a whole bunch of PDFs of people's medical records. Sure. I mean, one of the big ones in PCI was actually, if you're creating a website, if you're out there about to write a website and you have a login system, the immediate thing that you have to do after a login system is a forgotten password thing. So if you go to any website and you've forgotten your password and you click, you know, I forgot my password, and if they email you your password, they're not handling your data properly. The the part of it is that you have to reset it because there's no way to turn your actual password, I love ponies, to, you know, it's encrypted and it could never be reconstituted. That's kind of like what some of the basis of this yeah, for passwords anyway. Well, the password is the great example of the obvious sensitive data. Yeah. It's critically sensitive. And it goes, you can really get into this stuff. So depending on on what you're doing, if it's a one-way hash, for example, or an encryption, you should be salting those passwords as well. You should be using something like Bcrypt or um, one of the slow hashing mechanisms to prevent brute force. And before developers jump up, because when you say it's a slow algorithm to encrypt something, people go, well, well, I don't want my site to be slow, man. But this is actually only happens very infrequently and relatively to the rest of the usage of your site. So that can take a second to encrypt a password, right? Yeah. To then match it against what's in the database. That's okay. I mean, to be honest, a second is pretty extreme, but still. Yeah, but I'm using that as an example. Yeah, it's about saying that you log in, you need to do this operation once. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's trying to brute force a database full of passwords is going to be trying to do this operation as fast as they possibly can. So this is why we use a, a slower hashing function, because I'm happy to wait for half a second to log in if I know that it means my password is more secure because it can't be brute forced. And the other one is SSL or TLS. So this is making sure that all the data and all the communication between the user and system is encrypted. And we've got to have configured our TLS right. This goes back to the secure system stuff that we were talking about earlier. We've got to make sure that this is configured correctly because TLS is complex and there's all Mm -hmm. sorts of different ciphers and options. There is a great site if you, again, we'll try and pop this in the show notes, which gives you best practice security configurations for SSL for Nginx, for Apache, for Tomcat, for HA Proxy, and a bunch of others. And this is, it will turn off all of the crazy ciphers that you're not meant to use anymore. And it will optionally turn on things like strip transport security, which really double down on your SSL. Final thing on SSL is don't just think that you have to encrypt traffic between you and the user. Right. If you're on a shared network or even a potentially shared network, encrypt traffic between you or your application server and the database server. Right. So this is AWS, right? So uh-huh. AWS or any hosting provider, they have a network. They have all these machines in there. They have other people. So one of the big things I did in uh, PCI the intrusion detection and, and white hacking was that you could get into a database. Let's say I want to get into insert big name company here that happened to be using shared server, right? I don't attack their database. I find out what other databases are on that system and attack theirs. Mm -hmm. I then can run executable code to then go and get their data. Again, the Ocean's Eleven security guard trick. Yeah. So it is possible to get in there. And 
you have to make sure that all the servers that are communicating with each other are doing so rightly. Another thing that comes up in this is that remember where your data is going. Now, at one point you're going to go, hey, I'm going to use a caching server because you'll speed up all that, that kind of stuff. If it's security information, if it's private information, don't allow it to go to a cache server because you've now just exposed it to something that was meant to be speeding everything else up, right? So now you have this information that was secure, but it's now being held in an insecure format because, I don't know, caching servers might not be encrypted. You might not be thinking of it as something that holds, you know, secure information. Yep. So basically, encrypt all the things, but understand that encryption is complicated and it requires the right kind of configuration. It can't just be deployed blind. And even encrypted data, you need to be conscious of where it's going, where it's stored. And that's number three, sensitive data exposure. At number two that hasn't moved is broken authentication. We've covered this just now a, a little bit, but is a whole range of attacks, I think. So an easy example of broken authentication is that you allow someone to log in or failed logins to happen. Like, so I could keep on calling the URL going, is a password one, is a password two, is a password three, right? Yeah. So that's an easy example of broken authentication. Authentication should allow for normal usage, but stop brute force attacks like that, right? And as a simple one could be like, each time you try, you have an, an increase in how long you're allowed to do the next one, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm trying to do a thousand ones, by the thousandth one, I'm waiting 10 minutes for the response, right? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting here is that when we talk about broken authentication, we don't necessarily mean the authentication doesn't work. Right. We mean the implementation is poor. Yeah. So, you know, preventing brute forcing or credential stuffing, I think they refer to it as. Yeah. But also, it's silly little things like making sure that you don't identify which aspect of the username-password combination is incorrect. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. You know, oh, sorry, there's no user with that username. Oh, there's a user with that username. Great, so I can then work out that username's correct, and I can validate the password. You know, doing things like uh, this stretches all the way across anything to do with user access control mm. as well uh, and how they set up their account. So what's your password policy? Do you allow users to have dictionary words? Do you protect the user from themselves? Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, they probably need protecting from themselves. I mean, and this one's the one about using stupid passwords, right? So everyone goes, oh, what's your password? Password or star, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. You know, checking that when people are creating accounts, they can't use, or whenever they're resetting or resetting their password, they're not using a password that is in a list of, like, passwords that are out there in the wild that people know about, right? That they have hashes for, that they have rainbow tables for. Yep. I guess we should say what a rainbow table is. Yeah. Do you want to explain what a rainbow table is? It's basically a list of passwords to their hashed values, because people will use the hashed values stored in databases. So if you steal a database, you then see if you have, if you decrypt that password, you can say the encrypted version of this password is this hash code. Yeah. So then if you find that hash code somewhere else, likely as not... immediately know what the password is. You know yeah. what the password is. So it's effectively the only way to kind of reverse a hash. And it's really yeah. easy to defeat as well. We talked about salting earlier. Yeah. And the minute you salt a password the rainbow table pretty much becomes null and void because, yeah, yeah. Uh, provided you're using a decent hashing algo, hence we don't use MD5. Right. <laughs> There's uh, a couple of other things in here, and, and in terms of prevention, as a developer, it's probably one of the areas where we are actually most focused because this is often the front door to the application. Yeah. But also, a lot of this stuff can be a lot of work. So the easy wins really, really easy, are decent password policy. Mm -hmm. And if you want to know what a decent one is, the NIST policy or guidelines for secrets are out there. There's a whole bunch of really, really clever examples of how you construct passwords. Well, there's famous XKCD comic about... Ba battery horse staple. Yeah, battery horse staple about that, which we'll link in the show notes. Yeah. But also there was some good articles by Dropbox, I think, that they implemented how to implement a check against the password. So the old adage was like, you need to have a password with a number in it, a capital letter, has to be eight characters long, might not hold as true anymore because people did really obvious bloody things, 
right? This this recently kind of changed. So mm. up until I think last year, the official NIST guideline, NIST being the National Institute for Secure Technology, I might have just made that up completely. They're they're basically the good. US the US government security bods. They know what they're talking about. Uh, their guideline was it has to be between 8 to N characters long, it has to have an uppercase character, a lowercase character, and punctuation. And effectively, they're looking for a string of gibberish because that gibberish has really high entropy. It's going to be really hard to guess and what have you. What happened last year was effectively they kind of reversed out of that a bit to say, actually, it's better to generate a secret or a passphrase, which is much easier to remember, mm. but is much longer and still has some of those properties. Because the problem was that you'd make this stupid passphrase, which is eight angle bracket dash, which is impossible to remember. And we're being asked as humans to remember these things. So what would happen... So the first thing you do is you write it down. <laughs> you put it on that post-it that's stuck on front of your machine, or you have it in an insecure medium, like a Google Doc, mm-hmm. or you have it in something like that so that you can get it. I mean, now we have password managers and we have two-factor authentication. At one point, and I'm going to get this wrong, Yahoo had it so that you didn't even use your password. You just had to type in your email you logged in and your phone beeped at you and you said, yes, it's me. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the the quickest way as a developer to defeat most of this stuff is implement and enforce decent 2FA. Yep, two-factor authentication. That's it. Done. And it's really easy to do. There is a library for Google Authenticator that will do OTP, that's the rotating codes. Mm-hmm. Or if you fancy it, you can go and have a play with something like Authy or Duo. Other providers are available. <laughs> And these guys give you a range, uh, these companies rather, give you a range of of different options, including things like push authentication, which is what you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. You get a blip to your phone and you can just unlock it straight out. But 2FA is easily the cheapest and most effective way to mitigate the majority of number two on the OWASP list, which is broken authentication. I think we now get to number one, which has been a non- Top of the crop. Uh, Yeah. Uh, is injection and this they removed it i think they renamed it because it used to be sql injection or various types of injection like sql injection if the audience doesn't know what it is really read up this is like web development 101 is basically if you select something from a database if you're not you know you're essentially creating a string that you're going to throw at the database and you can escape that string to say you know Again, this is an XKCD comic, which is little Bobby drop tables, right? It's like little some, Bobby tables. <laughs> yeah, little Bobby tables, which allows you to just put in random SQL statements such as return all the passwords, which you now can look up against rainbow tables, mm-hmm. right? So you have to do like, you know, prepared statements that you can only receive something, maybe used stored procedures that actually just take in. And even then it's not 100% secure, but... You have to sanitize the inputs that go in, right? Yeah, SQL injection, specifically injection against MySQL, MSSQL, Postgres, Oracle, I guess, has been around forever. And honestly, there is no excuse for a developer having a SQL injection exploit in their code. Right. If you are using decent best practice, you don't even have to be using the latest modern shiny shiny, but you're using prepared queries, parameterized queries. They do all of the hard work for you. They escape all of this stuff and make sure that you have no vector. There is no risk. Mm -hmm. Where things get really interesting are, well, I suppose things get interesting the minute you don't do that and you've got an injection vector. But it's not just SQL. It's not just your database server. If you are taking data that you're then going off, for example, to query an LDAP server. Right. There is such a thing as LDAP injection. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a list of users. If you're authenticating your user against it, yeah. That's exactly what you Also, just I'm just going to say this, and I see this all the time. If you have a list of users that you're going to store in your database, don't call it a users table. Everyone calls it that. But, it's just, but Mark, Mark, isn't that security through obscurity? <laughs> yeah, it is. But, you know, yeah. it's just the easiest way that I could hack your system is by me going, select star from users. Right, because I don't even need to know there's a user's table. 99% chance that there is. Yeah, I genuinely um, think that I would rather you made sure that your SQL injection was just non-existent mm. than renamed your user's table, but I take your point. It Every little helps. Also, don't blacklist. Don't. What I mean is that don't start looking for like select from or things like that. Whitelist the data that should go in. Mm-hmm. If you're doing some kind of parsing, 
however your system is controlled, don't do the because you'll quickly be hacked. But if you say everything that goes into this this statement has to be a number that's going to be ten characters long. That's much more difficult than saying it shouldn't have select, it shouldn't have exec, it shouldn't have execute, it shouldn't have, you know, all the things that it shouldn't have. It's easier to say what goes in here is that, mm-hmm. apart from obviously text area fields, which are could be anything. But you could say like, you know, it shouldn't have many equals or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. So there's there's filtering, there's stripping, there's parsing. As I say, a lot of this is built into the driver mm. or the library that connects to the given database. And a lot of it you can actually handle, certainly in looking at SQL, because it is pretty much the widest surface, I think. Yeah. You know, making sure that your user permissions on the database are set correctly. Yeah. If you don't need to drop a table, why give the user that your application is talking to the database as drop table permissions? Yeah. And also limit those queries. Yeah. You know, if you've got like the simplest part of, we're talking about a login system, right? The first thing you do mm-hmm. is you go and match the, the username and password against that user and maybe get that user out, right? So you can have a user ID that you store in the session or something like that, right? Yep, yep. Limit that to one, <laughs> right? Because you can only get one user. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily, would that? No, it wouldn't necessarily protect against SQL injection, I'm not going to lie. No, but the thing is you couldn't. You could delete him or you could update him, but you couldn't then do give me all the rest of the users. Yeah, my main thing would be making sure that you've got, for example, protections against what users can access what tables. Mm-hmm. Think about your database users, and if your users table is the most sensitive area in your application, have a different connection string. Mm. Have a different user, because you can turn the auditing on that right up. Yeah, You want to know everything that that user does. In terms of other elements of injection, this is also, it broadens out beautifully to cover NoSQL that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Even the OS level. You can inject code that potentially can affect the operating system. If you're running data through Eval, for example. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Well, sometimes you kind of have to. Yeah. A lot of template engines use Eval under the hood. But hopefully, one would assume that those template engines are actually well thought through. You never know. (laughs) That that silence in the call. (laughs) I think this is, if anything, injection highlights the dangers of rolling your own for things like ORM, for things like, you know, template engines and what have you, because a lot of work has gone into preventing this kind of attack on a lot of the, the kind of common systems. And if you're building your own, you will probably not be as security focused or indeed as able as the teams of people who've built out, for example, Hibernate. Or mainly your goal of doing a template engine or doing, some, let's say, an ORM, right, is to solve business problems at first. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be like, let's start thinking about security right from the beginning, unless maybe that's your goal. But 99% of the time, you're going to be building a template engine because it solves an immediate business problem rather than thinking that, well, someone's going to hack the crap out of this. <laughs> or use it uh, to, to get into our systems, right? That's not you're going to be yeah. a goal for that. And I think the trouble is that even if you are thinking like that, it can be quite difficult. Again, thinking back to how you build a user authentication system that has throttling, it has brute force protection, it has 2FA, it has all of these additional features, and that's just the login to your application. You haven't even started solving the business problem yet, right? You've just built the door, and the door takes a while. Again, building secure ORMs, building secure database interaction frameworks, building Mm. secure templating engines is a load of work. Mm. So normally I would say that you want to make sure that you're using something where this work's been done for you by lovely open source developers. I mean, I'm not saying that this is part of the whole picture, by the way, of this injection part of it. It's like something I see is that, for example, if in CFML or Core Fusion, you have like a query within a function. It's a fairly common thing. In every language, I would mm-hmm. presume that you have a function that has got arguments. And if your arguments are numeric, make sure they're numeric so the function fails before even anything gets to the database driver, right? So you, an error would be thrown if you're trying to pass some string through to the thing. I'm not saying count on this, but just that, you know, proactive development pattern would say like I'm testing that the stuff that's going through is a string and it's, you know, within this range or something like that. That white listing. This is the classic position that we take as developers to protect against injection is you don't trust user input. Mm. So you're checking if you know that your username field has to be between sixteen and two hundred and fifty five characters 
make sure it's no more than 255 characters. Right. And that's before we even get to parameter binding and what have you. If it's more than 255, kick them back. Because somebody's doing something silly yeah. that they shouldn't be allowed to do. So it's about assuming a position of consistent paranoia when it comes to user-submitted data. And the big, uh, or one of my kind of secondary concerns on this area is just because they're authenticated and through the door doesn't mean that you stop being paranoid. Right. Just because you know that it's now Mark Drew 69 using my system with his password, password123, it doesn't mean that I can drop my guard. Right, because it could have stolen that data from, let's say, I'm taking a look at you, Adobe, and various people, because <clears> there's <throat> massive user lists out there that you can buy, and script kiddies will get them, download them, torrent them, get them from Tor or wherever, and start doing a loop through all of them at your site. Yep. And if they get hit a ping, you know, they're in, and now you think they're the authenticated user. That's how I would do it. And once you find something more out, I can go and get some more data from it. Yeah, and bear in mind, this is the problem with a lot of the security from a web application perspective. We put our applications on the web. We are web application developers. Yeah. We put them out there, and the minute they're out there, they are exposed to, what is it, 7 billion people in the world. Mm. They will come under attack. And the attacker has all day to poke and prod and and tweak, and there are automated tools, some of which are the same tools that we should be using to ensure that we're not vulnerable. Right. They can scan our entire system, and they can do all that whilst they're, you know, in bed, asleep. Yep. In fact, a lot of those tools are available on the OWASP website. Yep. So a lot of the stuff that checks, like a session rotation that is part of the security stuff that for example if i have one session when i'm not logged in the moment i log in my session should change so someone can't just steal they could have stolen my unlogged in session id but now i've got a logged in session id they can do session id rotation and things like that so you can check for all of this they have a, a whole bunch of tools in there that will help you and they have testing guides so you can have a look at how you can test your applications and how to fix them. And sometimes uh, um, I need to have a look, but there's going to be tools that are very specific for your language, for example. Yeah, so there's static analysis with a security focus. There are general tools that have, for example, Nessus as a vulnerability scanner that has plugins for different languages. Right. So if you know that you're working on a Java application and you know that PHP is not installed on that server, well, there's not much point in scanning for PHP. Right. Or is there? <laughs> well, you need to verify PHP is not there. Yeah. The other thing I would say is that as we kind of come to the, the end of the OWASP top 10, mm -hmm. A lot of this stuff is, it's quite broad, it's quite hard, and the best thing that we can do as developers is maintain a position of security first and build these controls into our day-to-day -day development. Yeah. In the same way that we would never build, knowingly build a system that is ugly or, you know, inefficient because as developers, we care about things like UI aesthetics and we care about performance. So we should aim to never build an application that is insecure. And we can have a, a run through, possibly in a, a different conversation, some of the, the kind of controls that we can put in around the team to ensure that they are always focusing on every element on these kind of top 10. And these are the top 10. Yeah. <laughs> there are hundreds of other vectors that you also need to be considering so putting security first in your development methodologies and as part of your team if you work in a team is absolutely key and part of this is you know we talk about testing and i think we might have a, an episode on testing at some point but it's like add some security testing to that think how you're going to be testing for these kind of intrusions and if you're repelling them mm -hmm. as part of your whole workflow yeah and also once your application is out there the job isn't done you know, we need to be running regular scans, and these don't have to be expensive. I mean, I mentioned Nessus before. I think they've still got an open source rule set, but there's also completely open source tools like OpenVAS that will scan a system from an external perspective mm. and look at it as effectively, a, I don't want to use the word hacker, but, you know, an attacker would see it. And the, it will give you a surprising amount of information which you can then act on. And you should be doing this against your systems on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis, depending on how sensitive the system is. There is no excuse for not checking this stuff because the tools are there and they're relatively easy to configure. 
And that's a lovely uh, topic to end on. I mean, I'm just going to add like a couple of additional ones. I didn't make the top 10, just a quick one, which is cross-site request forgery. So that's simply like taking somebody else's ID, which you can mitigate. So for example, doing form posts from somewhere else. In other words, they didn't actually fill out the form. They just sent a form. Uploading types of files that you shouldn't be able to upload. Yep. So you've got like, hey, send us your CV, and they send an .exe that you then run, right? I mean, that's actually kind of injection. Yeah. But yeah, I take your point. It deserves explicit attention. Uh, anytime that you're allowing a user to upload files, be very, very, very careful. Right. And yeah, be careful out there. It's a big, dirty internet. Hopefully we've not scared you all. Uh, out of web development and there's everything no i'm just going to live in the woods and whittle spoons it's too scary this stuff is yeah it's not easy to do but it is doable you know we do it and by being thoughtful about it you can hopefully avoid being the next uh well the next panama papers breach or the next what was the big u.s credit control one oh experian the next experian or the next nhs so there we go and on those happy thoughts, you know where you can reach us. You can reach us at show at localhost.fm. You can also tweet us at localhost.fm. I am at Mark Drew. And I am at Rob Dudley. And from the both of us, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.